Hello, and welcome to Maintenance Phase, the podcast where you get complicated feelings, and you get complicated feelings, and everyone gets complicated feelings. Wait, Mike, can I tell you what I wrote in my notes what? in case you asked me to do the tagline? What do you have? I wrote, hello and welcome to Maintenance Phase, the podcast where you don't get a car and you don't get a car. <laughs> Nobody gets a car. We don't have cars to give away. The problem is there's too many Oprah memes to choose from. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Bees. I'm Aubrey Gordon. Uh, I'm a, an author, a columnist, and a podcaster, and I'm here with... My co-host, Michael Hobbs. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash maintenance phase. Fun update. We now have bonus episodes. So you can uh, check out more of Mike and I talking about extremely consequential and inconsequential things. The most inconsequential of which is our first episode, which is Aubrey explains The Bachelor and The Bachelorette to Michael. Yes. There's so many clips and it was so stressful. We also have t-shirts, notebooks, mugs, totes at TeePublic. And you can find both of those links in the show notes for this episode or at maintenancephase.com. Totes. <laughs> and today we have a special guest. We sure do. Kimberly Springer is a adjunct professor at Barnard College and the editor of a volume called The Oprahfication of American Culture. Mm -hmm. She got in touch with us a couple of months ago and was like, I have weird feelings about Oprah, and I feel like you have weird feelings about <laughs> Oprah, too, and let's all talk about them. After repeated mentions of Oprah, yeah. I thought, I need to get in touch. Yes. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to talk about Oprah as a cultural force. We're going to talk about her biography. And then, because Oprah, like all of us, contains multitudes – we couldn't cover her entire career in one show, so this episode, we're going to talk about her infamous Wagon of Fat episode, and then we're going to do some sequels on other sort of iconic Oprah episodes over the years. I would just add to that introduction that, like, Oprah, like all of us, has a great deal of goodwill amongst the public, and rightfully so, and also she is someone who does things with a great deal of good intention, um, and sometimes that good intention leads to harm, mm -hmm. and I think we're going to try and talk about all of those things all at once, the like incredible intentions, the incredible work that she's able to do, and the harm, and try and hold all of those things all at the same time. Yes. I think that Oprah has done very good things for America, and I think that she has done very bad things for America and like both are true at the same time. I think it's interesting that we have to issue a disclaimer. <laughs> yes, right? What are what are your weird feelings on Oprah Kimberly? My weird feelings are that I think everyone assumes that everyone loves Oprah, but I have not experienced that as necessarily being true oh. in black communities. And I, I use black communities plural because of course there are people who love her and they love her capitalism and her entrepreneurship. But I know that there are also people who are very critical of Oprah as a person and what she has or hasn't done for the black community. And I think that's where it gets very interesting. Well, let's dive in. Do you want to start by telling us like the story of Oprah? Sure. Even this gets complicated because I think there's Oprah's own myth-making about herself that has just become fact. Like it's almost as if she sprung fully forth from her own forehead. Ooh. So she's born in 1954 in Cusico, Atala County, Mississippi. She talks about being a bookish child and how she was 
literate very early. She said she was able to read by age two and a half, and she's Mm. reading scripture by the age of three, and she's giving oratory in church. Mm -hmm. She is raised by her grandparents in Mississippi until she's eight. Mm -hmm. For that era of her life, it's interesting that all of the biographies of her will talk about her being raised on a pig farm. And I think that's really interesting because I think it, to a particular kind of maybe Yankee imagination, implies a kind of squalor. Mm -hmm. But actually, for the 1950s, for Black people to still own their own land and to own their own farm means that there was a kind of self-sufficiency that gets erased by just calling it and dismissing it as a pig farm. Hmm. One of her aunts, there was an interview, it was actually in the National Enquirer. Sorry, it was a cousin, a second cousin. She had this quote, she said, There was a family rule that no Winfrey women were allowed to work in the homes of white families. They could work in the fields, but it was a point of honor that they didn't do maid work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting to think about black women in a, in a community, but also her family making this unspoken rule, which, you know, speaks to a kind of determination, a kind of Mm self-determination that might get overshadowed when we think about how Oprah tells her own story of individual achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to think about this sort of question about sort of like, what were the supports that existed in Oprah's life that are maybe made invisible in her self-narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And how that links to what we see sort of later on when she starts talking about like the secret and getting into this kind of almost like prosperity gospel. Yes. One of the things that I came across in my research was a quote from her from the late eighties, where she starts talking about the deep spiritual meaning of money. <laughs> we are in some gnarly territory, <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> yeah. Cause how she's able to make like living your best life becomes the mantra. But before that it requires her to transcend any kind of racial or gender barriers. Right. And the way she talks about Mississippi is always about leaving the place. And she often will like refer to Mississippi as like a place where there's nothing there. Mm. So um, in about 60 to 67, she goes to live with her mother in Milwaukee. This period pretty much is characterized by her as the time when she was sexually abused. Mm. She's sexually abused from about the age of 10 to 14. Jesus Christ. Um, actually, maybe it's age nine. She says, by cousin at age nine, um, by an uncle, and also by a family friend. Ugh. It's interesting because the narrative that she then creates on her show, like with things like the Child Predator Watch List, is all about stranger danger as opposed to families as the site of abuse, mm. which is where a lot of her abuse happened. Does she talk about the effect of all of this abuse on her as a person? Like, it must have been a really hard thing to hold on to. So the research in the book shows that she didn't talk about the abuse until she spontaneously confessed it on her show, which was about survivors of incest. Oh, wow. Mm. So she wasn't, she didn't, like, plan it out like I'm breaking my silence. It was just like it came up. Right. Wow. Right. Maybe it's just a changing way that she thinks about it because there was a book that just came out where she's talking about abuse at the hands of her grandmother being in an abusive household. Mm. It's a narrative around her abuse that keeps changing. And I think it would be worth looking at how it tracks with how we talk about abuse 
in each different time period. Yeah, that's true, because these things are framed so differently. And also, she's been a public figure for so long that she can sort of ride the waves of, like, different societal understandings of abuse and also, like, processing what happened to her. You would just do that differently at different times. Yeah, I mean, I will say that also came up in the research that I did where I was like, oh, the way that Oprah talks about her body and particularly her size Uh is just a direct reflection of like, this is how we're talking about this thing at this time. Where I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't really think of her as being kind of like a little bit of like a sort of pop culture cipher. It's also a fascinating like palimpsest because she's also creating these societal understandings at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That, like, she's been so influential that if she does a bunch of episodes on stranger danger, like, she's helping to spread and reinforce that at the same time that she's also reflecting it in her own experience. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so in 68, she gives birth to a premature baby, and that baby dies a few weeks later. And I think that's the point at which she goes to live with her father in Nashville. So this is where we start to have her her sort of trajectory into speech and communications and and drama. Mm -hmm. She's eventually sent to like an elite suburban high school with with white students. That's about 25 miles away from what she calls the ghetto. Here's where we gain momentum. (laughs) 1971, (laughs) she's a senior in high school. She wins the Miss Nashville pageant and also the Miss Black Tennessee beauty pageant. She was a beauty queen? Yes. What? Oh, 100%. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, this also came up just in like, I did some Google image searching and the mm-hmm. number, like there is a picture of Oprah holding a bouquet of flowers, having a crown placed on her head. Baby Oprah. It's it's really, it's really something. What was her talent? You know, I don't know. I'm going to guess oratory. Or like maybe giving away cars. She had, a, <laughs> she had an aptitude for that at a young age. Appreciate it. Fun surprise, she's really good at close-up magic. (laughs) (laughs) So, she was a beauty queen. She was runner-up for the Miss Black America pageant. And based on her her beauty queen winnings, she is scouted by, interestingly reported, in some places it says a local radio station, to be a part-time newsreader. But it was actually like a new soul radio station. So this is a radio station with black DJs and programmers. It's interesting to me when the fact that it was a black run station gets erased from that narrative. Hmm. So she's uh, working at the station as a part-time newsreader. She's also attending college at Tennessee State University, which is an all black college. So this is from uh, People Weekly. They're describing how Oprah experienced college. Says college was trying for a young black girl uninterested in the compelling black issues of the day. Oprah says she retains neither fond memories nor good friends from college. Quote, they all hated me. No, they resented me. I refused to conform to the militant thinking of the time. I hated, hated, hated college. Hmm. Everybody was angry for four years. It was an all-black college, and it was in to be angry. I mean, one of the things that this says to me is sort of the way that the sort of the tractor beam into the white mainstream is plucking out people like Oprah. Right. Like, they're people that are more palatable to white America. Right. And I think it's really dependent on that context, because I I think it's pretty easy to just be in our present-day context and think, well— Everybody was radical back then, but no, (laughs) those are not the people who capitalism has. Well, there's there's also a quote that came up in a 1989 profile of Oprah in the New York Times 
When Winfrey was hired for AM Chicago, the station manager was, according to her executive producer, Deborah DeMeo, delighted that he had managed to find someone who wasn't an, quote, Angela Davis type who'd picket the station with a gun in her hair. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There is like an active reward for not aligning herself with almost kind of any kind of racialized politics, right? Right. But I just was sort of a staggering moment to be like, oh, right, it is like the early 80s. And like a station manager would totally go to the press and be like, we got a black woman who's not Angela Davis. Hooray. Right. You're like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. But yet she has an afro. You know, she's Mm -hmm. she anchors the news in um, Nashville. And then she moves to Baltimore and she's anchoring the news there. And you can see clips on, on YouTube. She has she has a beautiful afro. It frames her face like a halo. Mm-hmm. And then she co-hosts uh, her first talk show, People Are Talking. So she does that before she moves to Chicago. So I think there's an element of, like, she knows she's Black. She accepts that. And she's just Black enough to be palatable for mm. white people who are running these institutions. And what what year is this when she moves to Chicago? She moves to Chicago in, I think it's 1984. Okay. She takes over as host of AM Chicago. And after just a month, her rating surpassed Donahue's because his show was also on at the same time. Oh, wow. So it only takes a month. And after, in less than a year, it goes to an hour and they rename it the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey Show. Is it a local show or is it national at this point? The Oprah Winfrey Show is local until 1986 when it goes into national syndication. Okay. Her estimated earnings for 91 92 were $88 million. In 1990s money? Yes. Whoa. And, and, and by like, isn't it 87 or 88 when she buys her own show and creates her own studio? That's when she starts Harpo. Mm-hmm. In 1988. She fully, like, now is, like, owns the means of production. Right? Like, she's, like, all the way in on it. That was very, very smart for her to do that. It's incredibly savvy, yeah. And then, yeah, how, I mean, I guess she's now on the track of, like, becoming the Oprah that we know. So is it just, like, a sort of steady rise from then on? Just some some markers. She's in um, The Color Purple in 1985, and she gets Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations. Um, she also had started dating Stedman in 1986. Okay, I'm sorry. You have to explain the Stedman thing to me. I don't, like, know anything about Stedman. And he's, like, one of those words that comes up in, like, refrigerator magnet ways. Like, he's just associated with Oprah, but, like, I don't know what his deal is or who he is. I love that, too, he's just Stedman now. You know, like Oprah. He's just Stedman. Is that his first name or his last name? That's his first name. First. Okay. (laughs) Stedman Graham. Cher. So I think it's interesting that they are engaged in... 1992, when she's 38. And mm. People Magazine, I just was like, wow, y'all are wild. People Magazine, <laughs> in the, the story about her engagement, I think it was on the cover, they said, for as long as Winfrey has been famous, she has been dogged by two questions. How much does she weigh? And when uh, is she getting married? What the fuck? Yeah. The first answer, alas, has been offered time and again, though it is currently a well-guarded secret. The second response was six years in coming. Like, can can a sister celebrate? I know. Can she just have a moment? (laughs) It's so so gross. It's so (laughs) gross. And can women not be reduced to, like, these two fucking irrelevant pieces Mm -hmm. of information? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty gross. (laughs) 
<laughs> so what is Stedman's deal? Like, what does he do for a living and stuff? He was an athlete, and then okay. he also, I think he was a sportswear model. Are they still married? <laughs> I honestly did not know this. They never got married. Oh, okay. They call off the ceremony in 1993, and oh. she wrote about this in... Oprah magazine. Hmm. In 1993, the moment after I said yes to his proposal, I had doubts. I realized I didn't actually want a marriage. I wanted to be asked. I wanted to know he felt I was worthy of being his missus, but I didn't want the sacrifices, the compromises, the day in, day out commitment required to make a marriage work. My life with the show was my priority, and we both knew it. Hmm. So now they say they have a spiritual partnership. So they've stayed together, but they're not married. Right. Yeah. Um, so the book club launches in 1996. Do you know what the first title for the Oprah Book Club was? Oh, isn't it? Is it The Lovely Bones? It's Toni Morrison, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what just happened? No and no. <laughs> No and no. Wait, really? That's Jacqueline Bichard's book, The Deep End of the Ocean. Oh, oh. I don't know this book. I got nothing. Yeah, it's about, yeah. It's about a kidnapped child who, who turns up to mow the, his family's lawn after being missing for several years. But that's also, I feel like that moment marked the sort of realization of what a cultural force mm. Oprah was. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it became this thing that every single time she would have a book club book, it would be like, oh, it sells like 200 billion copies like the day after she announces mm -hmm. it. It just was like right. this illustration of like this woman is creating culture and like the amount of power that Oprah has that she can say anything like, I like Crocs or something. And then all of a sudden it'll be like a $10 million market. It's an algorithm before an algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> and like the earliest example of like what we would call now an influencer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the book club, there's there's the Jonathan Franzen controversy over the corrections being a selection for her book club. We are not talking about this at all because I want to do an episode <laughs> so bad. That dude sucks. <laughs> That dude sucks so much ass. <laughs> so listen, here's my new concept for the show, everybody. It's changing starting now. We just read names of people who've appeared on Oprah to Mike, and he tells us if they're garbage or not. <laughs> okay, so in 2000, she and Hearst, um, Hearst Magazine's launched O, the Oprah Magazine. Oh, yeah. In 2008, she and Discovery announced the creation of the OWN Network, which goes on the air in 2011. Oh, yeah. And in 2015, joining the board for Weight Watchers. Well, also, like, somewhere in there was, like, she did the Lance Armstrong interview. Like, she oh, just got right. a bunch of humongous culture-shifting yeah. sort of major, major interviews and has sort of become the source for... Oh, one of the most famous or notorious or whatever people in the world wants to like tell their story. They're mm -hmm. gonna do that with Oprah. The, uh, Tom Cruise jumping on the couch. I feel like is another big Oprah moment oh too. Oh my god, that was right. America being like, this person is yeah. like kind of unwell. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my timeline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nailed it. That's it. That is genuine. Like a lot of things I did not know about Oprah. I feel like as you were talking about it, I was like, oh right, all we do really have about Oprah is her own narrative. And she is like extraordinarily savvy. Like that was <laughs> genuinely a thing I had not <laughs> thought about. And I was like, no, that seems like, yeah, like a foundational insight. <laughs> I feel like the trick is to just literally never believe billionaires when they tell their life stories. <laughs> Nobody gets that yes. rich without some like mm -hmm. severe shenanigans. Capitalism does not allow that. Yeah. <laughs> Aubrey, do you want to, uh, do you want to rewind us to 
the episode of the Oprah show that you're going to walk us through? I'm so excited. Totally. So I did the whole thing where I was like, I'm going to write out my notes and I'm going to write it in a way that's like, surprise, we're talking about the wagon of fat. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, no, why? (laughs) Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Yeah, we know. We were emailing about this, Aubrey. We know. No, no, no. I mean like the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean Not like you. Like I'm like, we did a whole email about this, Aubrey. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we're going to talk about the wagon of fat episode, Oprah's big uh, weight loss episode from 1988. I will say this. I've at this point done a fair amount of research for this show. A lot of it hard to stomach or like really unpleasant Mm. or whatever. None has made me as sad as looking Mm. at press coverage of Oprah in 1988. The number of headlines that came up from that late 80s coverage Mm -hmm. with specific numbers about Oprah's weight in the headline. The number of headlines and stories about whether or not Stedman is just using her for her money because he couldn't possibly be in love with a fat woman. Every aspect of Oprah's identity and experience is up for this really ruthless and kind of heartless kind of debate. Uh She's this fat. How fat should she be? I liked her better when she was fat. Now she's thin. Right? That just like everyone is having all of their garbage feelings and opinions out like in print and on TV about her all the time. But I don't know if I actually am familiar with this episode, the Wagon of Fat episode. Oh my God. (laughs) There are times when I really do have to like remind myself that you are not in fact just like a bizarro mirror image of me. Yeah. Oh, you weren't a fat teenage girl. Sorry. Like (laughs) I'm on the gay internet. It's all shirtless men in there. I don't, I don't know what is the Oprah episodes. I don't get those recommended to me. (laughs) So, Uh, As we mentioned earlier, Oprah is, like, incredibly successful. She's been on the air with her show for just a couple of years um, while she's buying Harpo, while all these other things are happening. Oprah has been losing weight, and she's been losing a lot of weight. At the point, sort of, that this episode is filmed, she has lost 67 pounds. What? And she has done it on something called OptiFast. Is that something that either of you have heard of before? Yes. I remember that era. Yeah, me yeah too. I don't know if I know that specific one, but I know the sort of genre of crash diet where you're drinking these like awful milkshakes, like these weird powdered. They have like flavors like chocolate or caramel, but it's just like brown chalk or like slightly less brown chalk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. It is a kind of diet that we've talked about on the show before, a VLCD, which is a very low calorie diet. I will just flag for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to mention some calorie numbers and some weight numbers. It's kind of hard not to. Mm. This diet OptiFast is referred to at the time as a quote-unquote medically supervised liquid fast. So you're like working with doctors is sort of the idea there. Keeping an eye on it. But you are consuming 400 calories a day. What? Yeah. That's like prisoner of war rations. Yep. So each of these shakes is 160 calories. Um, They're still for sale today. It is, you know, less than 25% of your recommended daily allowance, yeah, according to sort of the food pyramid and all that kind of stuff. There is a piece in the Buffalo News at the time that says, quote, OptiFast is made of egg white and milk supplemented with vitamins and minerals to prevent cardiac irregularity. Oh. Its formulation differs from controversial liquid protein diets of the past, 40 dieters died on that mix made of collagen, protein, hooves, hides, horns, connective tissue of cattle. 
It was not life-supporting. Optifast is. I love it when fad diets are like, we're not like those other fad diets. (laughs) Like those ones that are bad for you. We aren't made of ground-up cattle hooves. Yeah. Like, what? (laughs) Little fun fact um, about this diet. Like many diets of that era, it has the sort of like initial like phase to quote-unquote kickstart weight loss, right? Mm -hmm. That is the 400 calories a day phase. By the time you get to the end, you get to a luxurious 1,000 calories a day. That's your forever after this diet. I mean, no wonder Oprah lost hella fucking weight. Yeah, yes. <laughs> like, this isn't enough food to live. Right. Yes, absolutely. And she talks about that later. She's like, after I did the show, I started eating again to celebrate just like eating some solid foods, right? Like, she's on it for four months at 400 calories a day. And she makes this big deal on the episode about like, I'm back in my size 10 Calvin Klein jeans that I wore 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I started eating solid foods. And within two days, those jeans didn't fit anymore. Uh, I was like, yeah, yeah. 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 There's actual food in your actual stomach. I don't know what to tell you. The cost of the diet at the time was between three and five thousand dollars a year, according to the New York Times. In today's dollar, that is uh, between seven and eleven thousand dollars. Wait, that's almost a thousand dollars a month. That's like people's rent. Uh huh. There are also some media coverage around, like a little, some cautionary notes about Optifast. But those are mostly about how the diet is too drastic if you're just trying to lose 10 or 15 pounds. So it's like the idea is it's not safe for thin people, but fat people need to do it for their health. Oh. Um, it's also worth knowing that OptiFast is owned by Nestle. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Always. <laughs> They're probably selling OptiFast in other countries as baby formula. Yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Oprah loses 67 pounds, and the way that she decides to reveal it is at the opening of her show, she pulls out this red classic, like, radio flyer wagon with a clear plastic bag full of 67 pounds of animal fat. So it's like pork fat and beef fat. So with that, we're going to watch two little actual clips of this actual episode. I fucking hate what you have done to my recommendation algorithm, Aubrey. (laughs) Oh my god. I hate what you've done to my right-hand bar. It's. I realize I need to do all of this incognito. Mine is all like fucking diet ads now on the right-hand stuff. It's like how to get 10,000 steps. such intense garbage. At the time, I felt it was important to show it in that way because I had not, I'd starved. I'd literally starved for four months or four and a half months and thought everybody's going to want to know how you lost the weight so you might as well tell them 67 pounds since july 7th 67 pounds and 30 inches from my bust my uh, waist and my hips and this is what 67 pounds of fat looks like i can't i can't lift it now when you talk about jimmy is this gross or what It is amazing to me that I can't lift it, but I used to carry it around every day. And when you talk about making yourself the best you can be, do, I'm glad I did this for my heart, because my poor heart that had to send blood to all of this, all of this, it, I, it's just, it's shocking to me that it is, it is this, uh, I saw it yesterday, I said, I'm gonna live on broccoli now. <laughs> 
want you to know that whatever diet you choose, and this audience is filled with people who've had great successes, you can do with the help of your family doctor. And if you can believe in yourself and believe that this is the most important thing in your life, as, as Scott said to us earlier, you can conquer it. Because if I did it, if Scott did it, if Billy did it, you can do it. I thank you very much. Thank you. Oof. Oh, this is such Aubrey bait. <laughs> I know exactly the parts that piss you off, Aubrey. Ugh. I mean, I think the thing the thing that like bothers me the most about that clip in particular is just the intense, like weirdly sort of salacious camera work. Mm. Like so much of it is just pushing in on close-ups of like discarded animal fat yeah i forgot how much she will slip into like she code switches dude mm-hmm. yes i noticed that too there's just a tone that she starts to take that i'm like oh please don't sister girl me right now <laughs> i am 100 projecting but she looks so miserable in these clips <laughs> maybe hungry maybe she seems like a very hungry person <laughs> that's what i think is like after four months yeah. like imagining exactly the same thing three meals a day and just being hungry all the time. Like, you can't run your life feeling like that. And it it feels palpable to me. Although, again, I'm probably projecting. Yeah, I mean, that part stands out to me. I think the other part that stands out to me is just the sort of, like, if I can do it, you mm-hmm. can do it. And yeah. I'm like, oh, Oprah, that is not a one-to-one, ma'am. Yeah, you made $88 million last year. I didn't make $88 million. Yeah. Totally. This is an extraordinarily expensive diet. It's an extraordinarily restrictive diet. What she says at different points on the show, she says it was six weeks. Yeah. Some of the um, media at the time, they cite a four-months number, which seems for six, to lose 67 pounds in six weeks It's alarming to lose that much in four months. It is deeply upsetting slash maybe physically impossible to lose that much in six weeks, right? Like, whoa. I am stealing this point from a lady I know named Aubrey Gordon, but also (laughs) Oprah didn't do it. Like, she gained the weight back. Mm -hmm. Like, 99% of people who lose this much weight this fast do. What this really is a story of is, like, even Oprah with her $88 million a year isn't able to keep the weight off. Because, like, nobody can continue living like this. Like, nobody can eat a 1,000 calories a day for the rest of their life. Like, it's extremely bad for your health. It's extremely bad for your mental health. Like, this was never going to work for her in the long term. I will say the other thing that feels really fascinating to me about this clip that is not often mentioned is that um, this show airs during sweeps. Oh. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. This single episode has her largest ratings to date, and some of the media that I found claimed that even in the 25-year run of the show, this was still the highest rated episode ever. No way. This episode got... 18.4% of all households with television. Holy shit. That's like Super Bowl numbers, dude. Uh-huh. And the makers of OptiFast say that they got over 200,000 calls. Wow. So it's this really tricky thing, right, where you're like, oh, my God, Oprah's getting all of this horrific negative media coverage about her size and these public debates about her body and about her life and about everything, right? She's working all that out. Like many of us, she thinks maybe weight loss is the thing that'll take care of it. She does that, but everything she does is on TV, including this. So it also sort of sets off this kind of, you know, it's like a butterfly flapping its wings, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Leading to sort of a tsunami, right? Where you're like, oh, this is like a deeply human thing to do, but you're doing it 
during sweeps on an immensely popular TV show. Also, it's just awful to think about going through the sort of extremely normal cycle of like a crash diet, feeling good, there's a sense of euphoria, and then this general disappointment in yourself and like self-loathing as you inevitably gain the weight back. Like that's hard enough. But doing it in front of the entire country and having people commenting on it and speculating on it and like, what's wrong with her? She's gaining the weight back. Why can't she do it? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just like this extra level of basically abuse. Yeah. It does make me sad. I did not expect that. (laughs) It's like, I'm so sorry. There are two more clips and both of them will also make you sad. I apologize. Um, Okay. So I dropped a link to you guys. Oh, no. It's maintenance phase nemesis Johnny Carson. (laughs) It sure is. The trash men of maintenance phase. Oh, buddy. You will be surprised by where the trash comes from in this particular interview. Oh, no. Uh, Let's go back. What age were you when you first started to find out if you were a little larger than you wanted to be? This is what I learned. I've always been one of those people. Thank you, Johnny, for being delicate. (laughs) Trying to couch that. Speaking of that, I happened to look at some tapes the other day of the first time I was on this show. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you tell me? Well, I mean... I look like Shamu. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, well, we actually, it's, it's very interesting. I'll I was bet one... you some people, yeah. I'm taking a guess, uh-huh. I'll bet you some people said, I'd like you better the other way. Is that, did that happen? Yeah, they have said that, but they lying. Do they lie? They are lying. The interesting thing about it is, though, I was one of those people who always said, oh, I carried my weight well. I carried well. I know I'm overweight, but I carried well. Then I look back at pictures, I carried exactly where it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> my best friend said to me the other day, you know, I see those pictures of you and... See, I don't think of you that way, Moby. Yeah. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> what? Uh. Yeah, tell me tell me what you guys are um, thinking and feeling. Ugh. <laughs> it's just yeah. so nauseating. Yeah. This is a 10-minute clip that I watched in, like, 90-second intervals. Because yeah. I was like, I need a break. <laughs> like, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think part of what landed so hard is watching someone who sometime between, you know, four months or a year or whatever, however long before, was fatter, so aggressively divorce their current self from their past yeah. self. Yeah. Uh-huh. So she's like divorcing herself from her previous fat self, but she's also kind of divorcing herself from fat people. Yeah. She's buying into all of this logic that's like, oh, if people tell you they carry it well, they're lying. If they tell you that they like the way you look, they're lying. She's also, like, she's congratulating her friends for saying mean shit to her, too. Like, your friends should not be calling you a fucking whale, dude. Like, you shouldn't be like, LOL, my friends did this awful thing to me. Like, that's just normalizing the idea that we're kind of, like, supposed to confront our fat friends. Like, fuck that. Also, just, like, why didn't you tell me? Her question to Johnny Carson, why didn't you tell me? Jesus (laughs) Christ. Never in my life have I heard a fat person be like, you know what? I actually don't hear from thin people enough what they Mm, think of how I I look. (laughs) Like That's just like not a thing that I have experienced ever. Make sure to tell me about this thing that I'm acutely aware of at all times. Yeah, (laughs) make me feel bad in my closest relationships too. (laughs) To me, it's like this sad thing of like, it's this woman who looks fine (laughs) and seems like happy and like unbelievably successful. Yeah, And then it's like she still feels like a failure because of this one extremely superficial trivial thing Mm -hmm. and like and also the whole culture of course is telling her that she's a failure because of this one thing or that nothing counts because of this one thing i mean first of all this is not a standard that we apply to men at all there are many men in public life who have just been like fat dudes and like no one gives a shit and it really feels like a firm move into a kind of white assimilationist Mm -hmm. individualistic 
stance for her. The, mm-hmm. the idea that if somebody says they're comfortable, they're lying. I don't, it just feels like a direct attack on Black women who are larger. Yeah. Totally. Aubrey, Kimberly, do you think Oprah was able eventually to just sort of come to peace with the way that she looks? Or like, is she still in this cycle? I mean, I think this is where we get into a little bit of like, the things that we know about Oprah's mindset are the things that she decides to tell us. Mm. Um, So I think there's a question about like her individual mindset as a human, which we can't know. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like as I was looking through media for this, like, you know, she's done media work since I think it's like 2009, maybe where she starts talking about how like healthy is the new skinny and she doesn't want to just be thin. She wants to be strong and healthy mm-hmm. by which she means thin, right? Like right. it just feels very conflicted in a way that feels like a reflection to me of like the way that like many, many, many people and particularly women feel about their bodies. Right. Right. Kimberly, I'm curious about if you have thoughts or experience <laughs> uh, to share on this. Front. I was going to, Take us into it. I kept getting distracted by her hair, and I don't know. Right? Want to get into that that tangent because you know I'm like, what is this Tina Turner wig that's happening? I know. So, okay, like, how does like her wig speak to me of a particular kind of class achievement? So that she's able, uh. like, everybody knows Oprah has money. We assume she has more money than God, mm-hmm. and so she's able to make herself look a particular way and indulge in particular products. Mm -hmm. Like her skin is always glowing. Yes. (laughs) She always looks. So it seems like she's able to move away from conversations about her body and Mm. move into more of a class of like, this is what my wealth affords me. So I Mm -hmm. look and feel exactly how I want to feel. Mm. But I think the, attention to body has fallen away. Mm. So we're going to watch one more clip of a sort of pop culture response, and then we're actually going to hear from Oprah. So what we're about to watch is um, Mad TV. I used to love this show, and it's so problematic. It's it's so jacked up. So they do a series of sketches about Oprah. There's like quite a few of them. And this one is about Oprah being fat, and it is super duper intense. Okay, girlfriend, what's the topic for today's show? Please tell me I don't have to deal with a bunch of quiet babies. Sorry, today's show is about grieving. Damn it! Sorry. That's okay, girlfriend. I'm just going to smile and think about the money. All right, let's make the loss of a loved one fun! Okay, here we go. Oh, oh, yes. Come to mama. Who the hell is that on the monitor? Is that Cedric the Entertainer? No, Oprah, that's you. Oh, girlfriend, look, I had a rough weekend, okay? I gained over 180 pounds, I told you, to take me only with the thinning camera. It's okay, it's okay. It is out there right now. Your thinning camera is camera number two. It's out there. It's guaranteed to make you look 200 pounds lighter. Good. Then I can keep eating. Uh. Yeah, we're going to stop it there. That's the opening. The sketch ends with Oprah getting, uh, mistaking herself for Forrest Whitaker okay. on the monitor and welcoming him to the show and then realizing that the image is of her and getting so angry that she hulks out and explodes fat onto everyone. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. So they just, like, you just get these shots of people 
being sort of soaked in like slimy, gooey fat. When is this from, Aubrey? This one's from 2002. Oh, it's that late? Oh. It's that late. Huh. Also, Oprah doesn't even say girlfriend that much. That was like the central joke of this uh-huh. sketch. And like, she doesn't even say girlfriend. And it's like, you can see the ways at which her womanhood is at issue, right? That she calls herself Cedric the Entertainer and she calls herself Forrest Whitaker. Uh You can see the ways in which she is getting painted in this as like an angry black woman, right? That she's got this sort of false front. And the entire conceit of this sketch is just like, look at this gross fat lady. They also made her like significantly fatter than the actual Oprah. Like, they made a yes. huge fat suit for right. this. Right. They made her about my size, which she has not ever been. It's really, truly wild how hard they are leaning into, like, what a grotesque body this is. Yeah. So it's a kind of racialized sexism that is mm-hmm. is reacting to, I think it's reacting to just the idea that, like, a larger Black woman is supposed to be nurturing and, like, your big mama and taking care of you and cooking for you, but a Black woman who tries to do anything other than that deserves mm-hmm. this kind of viciousness. Yeah. There were, yeah. like, many more comedy examples of stuff like this. Uh-huh. I think they would have said at the time, like, we're just calling it like we see it, right? It was, like, that sort of era of comedy where it was just, like, offense is comedy, right? Like, just, like, hurting people is a funny thing inherently. Yeah. Mm. So the last clip I wanted to show you all is of Oprah talking about this in 2011. Around this same time, she is uh, does an interview with Entertainment Tonight, and they ask her what the biggest mistake she made on the show was. This is, Mm -hmm. like, around the time that the show's wrapping up. And she says it is this episode. Oh. Elle magazine quotes her as saying, present day Oprah considers the episode, quote unquote, hard to watch because, quote, you can see that my ego is on flamboyant display. Mm. I've had to pay the price for that moment over and over. I literally handed to the world on a fat wagon platter the story of, is she fat? Is she thin? Mm. We're going to hear from Oprah directly about sort of like what were the kind of pressures that she was navigating. Four months, not a morsel of food. I, I, I got to tell you, during that time, I planned a vacation to the south of France. I gave that vacation away to friends. Anything that involved being around food at all, I just canceled anything that was going to put me any place where I could smell or come in contact with food. So some people thought I did that for Stedman. There is, uh, as I said, a lot of rumors which make me ill, that I did this because of Stedman. Uh, I love Stedman very much, and he cares about me and has been very supportive of me, fat and thin. I did not do this for Stedman. And anybody who is overweight and whose spouses or friends are telling you to do it, you know you cannot do it for anybody but yourself. There was certainly a part of me that felt that I didn't match what he was in his physical stature. He's a very good-looking guy. And I knew that when people would see us together, that the first thing they were thinking, I certainly thought for myself that what they were thinking is, what's he doing with that fat girl? Oh. Right? Yeah. (laughs) This is very interesting to hear her talk about, to be self-reflective like that. Because I asked my mom, I was telling her I was going to be on this podcast, and she was like, what's a podcast? But (laughs) (laughs) I was asking her how she feels about Oprah, and she was like, I don't really care for her, because she 
she always seems like she's doing stuff for the culture. I was like, whoa, I didn't expect this answer. Mm. What do you mean? (laughs) And she said, she doesn't seem like she's doing stuff for herself. It feels like she's doing stuff for show. Mm. It's interesting to see this clip and to see her saying almost exactly the same thing that my mom said. Yeah, that she's aware of herself as a, like a, a visual symbol. Right. But yet all of the, the rhetoric around the weight loss that she put out was about doing it for herself. Yeah, there's this yeah. dissonance where in the clip from 1988, she's saying, I did this for me. And then in the clip from now, she's like, oh, uh, I did it for Stedman. Right. Yeah. Well, and not even I did it for Stedman, right? Like, that's another part of what I think is so fascinating about this clip is that she's saying, people were saying I was doing it for Stedman. I wasn't doing it for Stedman. I was doing it because I felt like people were looking at me as like the part that didn't fit in this relationship, which is different than like a 1988 narrative of like, my boyfriend made me do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is sort of like what they're talking about. And actually what she's talking about here feels to me like a pretty clear cut case of like deeply internalized anti-fat sort of attitudes, right? That's just like, people won't trust my relationship. They won't like my, you know what I mean? Like all of that sort of stuff. Or like my weight emasculates my boyfriend Uh in this weird way that Uh even if he's fine with the way that I look, there's something about the public facing nature of us that like invalidates our relationship in some way, even if we internally are happy. Yeah, I mean, there were also those rumors for years and years and years about both her and Stedman being gay. Oh, yeah. Part of what lends credence to those sorts of rumors is this kind of perceived physical mismatch, right? He's too handsome and too well-groomed to be like a straight man, and she's too like fat, basically, to be a straight woman because we all know how the mechanics of heterosexual attraction work, right? And this doesn't make sense in that very simplistic kind of calculation that also bears no resemblance to how people are actually drawn to other people, right? Like it's just sort of like a cultural set of rules that we've kind of agreed upon. That's like the rumors for years that Jake Gyllenhaal was gay basically because he's like attractive. (laughs) There was like no actual evidence. It was just like, ah, he's hot, so probably hiding gayness. Like, I don't know. He's one of ours, guys. Can I make one note about the clip and the images? Yeah. They they picked the worst images of her instead. The worst Uh images. Like, I was looking at some really cute pictures where they looked happy and really supportive, but they picked these pictures where like, her, her, like her foundation, like the skin match, the tone yeah. matching looks off. It just, uh-huh. it's very, I guess the choice makes sense in what she was talking about. No, totally. But they also have like found a bunch of pictures of her definitely at her fattest, at least that I have seen. Uh. Again, she is a bajillionaire. They have plenty of really nice staged photos of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And what they have picked is these sort of like vacation shots that look like when you had a disposable camera, these might be the ones that you would like throw away. That's what I was going to say. Like they look like the photos you're tagged in on Facebook of like someone (laughs) else's camera and you're like half in the background. You're like, oh, (laughs) hard untagged. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that I will say that is uh, sort of related to the Stedman stuff is that this comes up in that New York Times profile from 1989. Quote, when Winfrey was fat, she hugged and touched her studio guests a lot. She practically cuddled. 
Now that she is slim and awfully glamorous, she maintains a far greater distance. A weird. The touch of a woman with a perceived sexual allure is scarier, more charged, dangerous. Paradoxically, her body seemed more loose, her movements more flowing when she was fat. When she is with Stedman, her body regains its comfortable eloquence. I guess there's something about like a fat lady not being as sort of threatening Uh and sort of, I guess, desexualized. So you feel comfortable with them touching you and you touching them. I I mean, I think that's part of it. And I also think that's part of like Oprah is stepping away from a very like Hattie McDaniels sort Mm -hmm. of like body type, right? Mm -hmm. That she has sort of been able to be cast in this role of like a nurturing fat black woman that people can rely Mm. on. And now that she's like, you're like more aware of her thinness, which also makes you kind of more aware of her wealth, Mm -hmm. which also makes you more aware of her beauty. Like all of those things sort of start to become a threat. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll say just as a person who's gone through major weight loss and major weight gain, both there is this sort of hint at, but they don't really get into the ways in which that, kind of dramatic change can really alienate you from your own body that like right like there's sort of this narrative about weight loss that is like it only gets better and you only like yourself more and really and truly it can be like extremely alarming to see how differently people treat you to Mm -hmm. figure out how to just like move and be in the world like really that profile and sort of our cultural logic at the time doesn't really allow us to go there. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I will say, just to like bring this one to a close, is in 2018, the National Museum of African American History and Culture had an exhibit on Oprah. Mm. And the Washington Post did a piece that was like, these are the five things you have to see in the Oprah exhibit. One of the five things was the size 10 Calvin Klein jeans oh. from the Wagon of Fat episode. So like... Even now, this was in 2018, right? So, like, even within the last few years, this remains, like, one of the biggest sort of, like, touchstones of her show. And it's really complicated. And she is still saying it's one of my biggest mistakes and I really don't like it. And she's also still owning Weight Watchers and she's still, you know what I mean? Like, it's all sort of unresolved. Of all the things she's done, how in the Black History Month is that the thing that you want to have? In the Black Sony, right. I don't understand. Right? <laughs> yeah. When they should have done the 40-foot-long foam colon that Dr. Oz used <laughs> in his introduction episode. Kids could have crawled through it. It's not black enough, uh, Mike. Mike, I'm host-divorcing you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>